Turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. I'm going to read briefly from John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And this will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning, which is Psalm 116. This morning we're going to continue in our brief series through the Egyptian Hallels. Those are those Psalms, 113 through 118, which praise God, hallelujah, hallel, for the exodus, the coming up out of Egypt into the land of promise. So these Psalms, 113 through 118, focus on that historical event, the exodus. And in a moment, we'll be looking specifically at Psalm 116. But to get a little context for that, let's read first from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And they will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because he lay down, because I lay down my life. That I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This command I have received. From my father. Amen. Jesus picks a familiar metaphor. They live in an agrarian society with shepherds. It's less common for us here in Boston. How many of you know somebody who actually makes a living from sheep? Yeah, it's, it's a lot less common, and yet it's a metaphor that would have instantly grabbed his audience and made sense to his people. I am the good shepherd. In fact, he adds to that, I am the door. Because in sheepfolds in ancient culture, there was no gate, there was no door. The shepherd stood in the doorway. The shepherd slept in the doorway. The sheep went in and out through the shepherd. And that's what Jesus says. Those who come in and out of the sheepfold, those who come in and out of fellowship with God, are those who come in and out through Christ. But there is something peculiar and strange going on. What does it mean? We get the metaphor. Sheep go into the sheepfold to sleep at night. They come out of the sheepfold in order to eat in the pasture by day. But, but what does the in and out mean for us? 
Do we go into fellowship with God and then come out of fellowship with God? As good Calvinists, we say, no. It's not what scripture teaches. Jesus is here referring to is that translation from earth to heaven. From church militant to church triumphant. From an hour-long worship service on a Sunday morning to an eternity-long worship service. Day after day and week after week. This is what he's referring to. The riches of the shepherd who leads us into fellowship with God here on earth, only to lead us out into fuller fellowship with God in heaven. How does this happen? How do sheep go from a really good pasture to the best pasture ever? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. How do we get abundant life? How do we get eternal life? Jesus gives us his life. He gives up his life to us. The hireling does not. The hireling doesn't care about the sheep. The hireling is interested in a paycheck. The hireling sees a wolf and runs away and says, you know what, I'll still get a paycheck. But not Jesus. He sees the wolf, and in this parable, the wolf is death. And Jesus is a good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't fight the wolf off. He submits to it. And so saves the sheep. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 116. Our psalm this morning is Psalm 116. We've gone through Psalm 113, which has taught us to pray for our future by praying ourselves out of the selfish expectations of the future into a Christ-centered future. We went through Psalm 114 that taught us to pray for our home, taught us to pray out of our expectations for this earth and to pray for the new heavens and the new earth, that new home in the new Jerusalem. Psalm 115 likewise taught us to pray for our family, to pray out of the biological immediate nuclear family that we are so often busy with and pray into the family of God, the kingdom that we are called to be a part of for all eternity. You can expect the same progression in Psalm 116. Psalm 116, hear now the word of the Lord. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes. From tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord? For all his benefits toward me, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Amen.
and amen. Growing up on a farm with four brothers, I was under the impression that near-death experiences were just a daily common occurrence. I met Lydia in high school, and she tried to teach me that that was not always how humans lived, taking extreme risks that could result in death. But when you live on a farm, this is the expectation. For instance, I learned to drive on a Farmall H made in the 1940s. A bright red tractor with giant wheels in the back and the little tiny wheels in the front so that it was this narrow little triangle. And one of my first times being out on the tractor, the old Dutch farmer down the road told me to go rake a round hill on the far end of our farm. And so I took the rake and I drove down the road and got up on the hill and started at the bottom where it's a little more flat and went around raking and and went around the hill all the way up as the hill continued to pitch. And two-thirds of the way up, I realized that when I looked to my right, there's a tractor tire eye level with me. And my heart rate's about 180, sweat's pouring off me, not just because it's the middle of summer. And inside, I'm screaming, Lord, don't let me die. I'm afraid the tractor's going to flip over. To make things more interesting, as I get about three-quarters of the way up, the nose of the tractor, those little two tiny tires are losing traction on the steep hillside, and the nose of the tractor keeps sliding down the hill. So I have to, to drive straight, and to make a nice straight line in the, in the raking of the head, I have to steer the nose up the hill as it slides down, and steer the nose up the hill as it slides down. Well, as you can tell, because I'm here telling you the story, I didn't flip the tractor over. God did hear me and save me, and I got off the hill. I put the rake up, I go driving across the field to the old Dutch farmer and I say, I did it. I raked the hill. He looks up at the hill and he goes, oh, you went all the way to the top? I would never do that with the H. You could die. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the warning. This is the nature of life. We don't always get warnings. This is the nature of death. We don't always get warnings. A brilliant pastor and theologian once made the observation, the most important thing a pastor can do is prepare his people to die. It is the one thing you will all do. Praise God for Psalm 116. A psalm that trains us to die. A psalm that teaches us to pray for our death. Just as Psalm 113 trained us to pray for our future by putting Jesus front and center. Just as Psalm 114 taught us to pray for our home by seeing the new heavens and the new earth as that home. Just as Psalm 115 taught us to pray for our family by seeing the church and kingdom of God as the true family. So Psalm 116 teaches us to pray in preparation of our death. But what is it putting front and center? Not surprisingly, it's Jesus. For the gospel truth for us this morning, the good news for us this morning, is Jesus died our death. That's what Psalm 116 is going to teach us. Jesus died our death. And so, my friends, let us pray with hope. Let us pray with confident expectation that even death itself will not stop our God. Let's look at the psalm together. Notice that the psalmist begins in a near-death experience. In verses 1 through 4, the psalmist says that the Lord heard him, heard his voice and supplications. The Lord inclined his ear to him. Notice that posturing. That God is not only a God who hears prayer, but a God who delights to hear prayer. This isn't a parent who is listening to the incessant screams of a child. This is a parent who is leaning in to whisper to the toddler, to listen to the toddler's whisper. This is the parent who inclines his ear. He wants to hear the voice of our prayers. He loves prayer meeting. He loves prayer meeting more than we do. A lot more than we do. How many prayer meetings have you guys missed? Do you know how many he's missed? Zero. He loves prayer. 
He inclines his ear to prayer. He is one who delights in the calling upon him. And so the psalmist in verses 1 and 2 says, I love him and I will call upon him as long as I live. The love in the psalmist's heart for God is rooted in the realization that God is always listening. That God is inclined to listen to prayer. What is more, the psalmist calls upon him as long as he lives. That he is dedicated then to a love expressed in further and future prayer. The psalmist's particular problem mentioned in verse 3 is that the pains of death surround him. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of him. He is in the middle of trouble and sorrow. In other words, that near-death experience. The psalmist is in a situation where death is all around him and no escape seems imminent. Where he seems unlikely to get away. And the only route he perceives is prayer. Those situations which are so dire and desperate, an intervention from God seems the only way out. I can give you two quick illustrations. One comes from the life of Israel in the Exodus. These are, after all, the Egyptian Hillels. These four verses seem to be focused on the event when Israel was in certain death. Does that clear it up? Because frankly, in the Exodus, Israel is constantly in certain death. So they're down in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and their baby boys are being thrown into the, river, into the Nile River to drown. And their older people are being whipped to death in the fields, being told, you are lazy, make more bricks with less straw. It's like the American economy. More work, less pay. Go, go, go. It's awfully similar, isn't it? We live in this idolatry of work and of labor. We live in a society that has never said enough. And this Egyptian culture of death is what God intends to deliver Israel from. These workaholics are meant to rest. But what is more, they come up to the edge of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. None of these guys swim. They don't have any boats or rafts. To cross the Red Sea is to die. It's to drown. But the Pharaoh's army is behind them, pinching them in. With death before them and death behind them, they are inevitably trapped in a certainty of death. But it is not so. One of my favorite lines, especially as a preacher, comes in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses says to the people of Israel, God will fight for you. You have only to be silent. It's a really polite Hebrew way to say Shut up, God's going to take care of you. You see, in the midst of certain death, prayer goes up in desperation and is most certainly heard. We further see this in the wilderness when Israel is without water. So what does God do? He gets water from a rock. Israel is then without food. So what's he do? He makes the dew a cake of manna from heaven. They have no meat. So what's he do? He changes the migratory pattern of quail. Quail don't migrate. And he sends them into the wilderness. Quail don't live in wilderness. In order to be eaten by Israelites. Quails don't like to be eaten. This is our God. Certain death is not the end of the story. It's a near death experience. So it too was with our Savior. You remember that time he was in Nazareth? It was like his first Sabbath. He's preaching his first sermon there in his hometown. All his childhood friends are there in the auditorium. His parents, his grandparents, everybody's there ready to hear the young rabbi give his first message. He does so well that as soon as the sermon's over, they're ready to throw him off a cliff. You guys remember that story? And he's standing on the edge of the cliff and and they're ready to throw Jesus off. And Jesus, you know what it says in the gospel? He walks away. I mean, how many times in human history can a guy walk away from an angry, murderous mob and just be like, yeah, stand back and just walk through the crowd? It's a near-death experience. 
I was trying to count it up the other day. I have a long list of near-death experiences. I told you about the Farmall H. There was the other time that the hurricane came to the coast of Virginia, but my family was on vacation. It was one of two vacations we took in my childhood. So hurricanes weren't going to stop us from swimming in the Atlantic Ocean. I learned what a riptide is. Talk about a near-death experience. And yet, friends, in all these cases, there is something important going on. We learn something very important when we come that close to death, when the pangs of death surround us, when the pangs of Sheol lay hold of us, and when we find trouble and sorrow, we learn something very important. God listens. We learn that God hears prayer. We learn that we can attend to him, finding that he attends to us. The psalmist teaches us That throughout our life, those sorrows that call us to pray and teach us to call upon him are those experiences that are preparing us for death. Because he is a God who hears prayer. Secondly, he is a God who answers prayer. Notice in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist begins with the character of God. He hears our prayers and he answers it according to his character. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Then he moves on to the character of we who pray. He preserves the simple, those who are brought low. He saves us. In this contrast, God highlights the two reasons we can be confident in prayer. As we always say in family worship, I've told you guys this story before. We always say at the end of family worship, let's pray. One kid will say, because... God hears it. And the other, because we need it. These are the two rhythms that motivate prayer. Verse 5, why do we pray? Because God is merciful, righteous, and gracious. Because God has a character that inclines his ear to prayer. This phrase, this reference, these three words, gracious, righteous, and merciful, point us back to the Exodus experience at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Where God is revealing his glory to Moses. And when God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai and says to him, here's who I am. He begins with the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate and merciful. A God inclined to hear and answer prayer. A God whose character delights in saving sinners. He's not stingy with love. He's not stingy with grace. But secondly, in verse 6, he preserves the simple, those brought low, he saved me. The reality is, is that God is inclined to help the helpless. God is inclined to justice for the oppressed. God is inclined to save the sinner. Those who are brought low and made simple. The psalmist here probably means the hopelessness and helplessness we all face in the grip of the grave. That none of us can overpower death. Indeed, the day will one day come where there will be no surgery that will save you. The day will come when there will be no medicine that will give you one more breath. The day will come when you will be very simple and you will be brought very low. There is no clothing that will shield your nakedness. There is no wealth that will satisfy your craving for life. No food, no drink that you will desire. Your body will be expiring. Your soul will be giving out. You will be very simple and very low. But notice these three words. He saved me. But friends, for the Christian, what we are slowly learning day by day is that whenever death comes near us, it is a near-death experience, by definition. We have, day after day, near-death experiences in order to learn that He saves us. He is able to save us. And so the psalmist says in verse 7, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. There is an abundance to how God deals with us. An incredible abundance to what he has done for us. He deals bountifully. How many times 
Should we have died and not? One of my favorite medical mysteries is sleep. How many of you can define sleep? What is sleep? Where's the medical professional here? What, what does sleep do? Why do we sleep? Do you know what the closest simile to sleep is? It's used in the scriptures this way. Death. We go inert. We lay flat on our backs. We do not move. We do not speak. We do not do anything. We rest. And it's this similitude to death that is the most essential and refreshing, life-giving action that we engage in as human beings. You can't go without it. You can't function without sleep. You must, every single night, for like six to eight to ten hours, depending on what age you are and what your body type is and all those other good things, you must pretend you're dead every night in order to survive. Now, isn't that tremendously ironic? Now, isn't that amazingly exciting? It means every time you wake up to the alarm clock, rather than getting mad and throwing it across the room, you could think, whoa, I was just resurrected. This is what Psalm 116 is trying to teach us. He doesn't owe you tomorrow. Every night is a near-death experience. Driving home this afternoon, some of you are aware of this, could be a near-death experience in more ways than one. Friends, we are living in a world in which there is a great bounty of blessing on which we must rest. In which we must see every meal as God staving off death. Every glass of water, one more sip of life. Every breath and intake, there is oxygen for the bloodstream. God is giving life. He's pushing off death. This is what he is asking us to do, to rest in the riches of his care. To no longer exhaust ourselves and weary ourselves with trying to prolong our lives. We didn't start it and we can't sustain it. Life is from him and only from him. And so we depend upon him. This is how he answers our prayers. By awakening us to him as the life giver. But thirdly and very importantly, these near-death death experiences teach us. Not only to pray because he hears it, not only to pray because he answers it, because he is the source of our life, but thirdly, we pray because it reveals he has a plan. Notice in verses 8 through 11, the psalmist says, You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. By this, the psalmist means the totality of God's salvation. He not only delivered him from death, but he also delivered him from the consequences and effects of death. His eyes are not welling up with tears. Though he lives in a death-overshadowed world, he is able to look with dry eyes on life. There is yet some cheer and joy in this world. There's a goodness in this earth that dries his eyes. What is more, his feet are kept from falling. That is, not going into sin or temptation. That he is able to not only escape death, but those sins which lead to death. That he might, in verse 9, walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist here is speaking of the getting out of death in order to get into the life of God. That I walk before God in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory. That I delight in his oversight and in his presence. And I walk in the land of the living with him, the God of my life. The psalmist says, I believe therefore, though greatly afflicted. His faith, though oppressed, endures. I believe, he says, even though in my haste I saw, said, all men are liars. By this, the psalmist is focusing our attention on the idea that God has a plan and purpose for what he is doing. He has brought him to the very edge of death. He's brought him into a near-death experience to teach him to pray for God listens. To pray for God answers. But thirdly, to pray because that is how we tune our attention to what God is doing. Not what we are doing. 
not what we are preoccupied with. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from falling, that I might learn obedience to you. That I might learn to walk with you and beneath you and before you. That I might embrace fellowship with God as my chief and highest end, to glorify and enjoy Him. That through prayer I move out of my earthly ambitions of being happy, of being wealthy, of being whatever worldly silliness we've been indoctrinated with, to being with God. And to know God and to delight in God as my chief end. Again, the illustration here for us is a poignant one. I had a seminary professor. He was a professor of missions. And he was a missionary. A missionary to Eritrea. It's one of my favorite stories. Eritrea, when he went over there, was a closed country. Missionaries are illegal. So he gets in by going to the airport with his passport and walking up to the customs window and saying, Hi, I'm a missionary from America. So they arrest him. And he works his way through the different you know, prison systems and the different court things until at last he lands in the office of the military dictator of Eritrea who has two guards with M16s behind him and says, who are you and what are you doing here? And he says, I'm a missionary. I'm here to plant churches. Will you help me? This is a good way to martyr, not a good way to missionary. Do you know what the dictator said? He said, yes. And there is a Presbyterian church in Eritrea today. My friends, death doesn't win. God has a plan. He's building his church. He's advancing his kingdom. This was the lesson being worked into the lives of Israel in the days of the Exodus. There's an incredible story that plays out for us between Numbers 16.32 and Numbers 26.11. I had to write down the numbers because I don't remember numbers as you know. In Numbers 16, we have the sons of Korah gathered with Abiram and Dathan. And they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron and the priests. And according to Numbers 16.32, they all die. But then there's a really weird line in Numbers 26.11. But some of the sons of Korah did not die. Why? Why do all the sons of Korah die in Numbers 16, only to admit that some of the sons of Korah didn't die in Numbers 26? God has a plan. Those sons of Korah will produce the fellow psalm writers with David. You have psalms in your 150 Psalter. You have in your Psalter, among the 150 Psalms, the sons of Korah. God has a plan. He has a purpose and an intention. Dr. Miller, my seminary professor, would tell us every day in class, you are immortal until you have completed your mission. And when you have completed your mission, there is nothing that will keep you on this earth. No one can take your life until the day you are due. And the day you are due, no one can take you from your father. This is what Psalm 116 is teaching us to pray. To pray through a life of living death. A life of near-death experiences. To pray through the ever-present reality and shadow of death. With the realization that God has a plan. And it ends exactly when he means to. Never before and never after. This is why we pray our way through life. Psalm 116 teaches us to pray with this focus and emphasis. With the hope for the future. The second half of the psalm then gives us three responses. Beginning in verse 12, there are three things we must do in order to respond to these theological lessons. Our God hears our prayers. Our God answers our prayers. Our God hears and answers our prayers according to his plan. His perfect and intentional plan that we would walk before him. 
So three things we must do. Number one, we must receive His salvation. We must live. The first thing we do is we live. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Friends, the psalmist says, what shall we render to the Lord for His benefits to us? What should we give Him as a gift in thanksgiving for all His benefits? For all those times that death had us in its clutches and He saved us. For all those times that He gave us one more day and we didn't deserve it. For all those times that He fed us and watered us and clothed us when we deserve to be hungry, thirsty, and naked. For all those endless heaps of benefits toward us, what could we possibly give? I mean... Have you guys ever encountered this? All the dads have had to deal with this. There is nothing, at least for me as a dad, like the child who owes his or her existence to mom, giving mom trouble. Now, I mean that hypothetically, of course. But the reality is, you could never repay mom. You could spend your rest of your life, but you couldn't do it. You owe her life. How much more God? How much more God, who every day of your life put off death? A death you deserved. You didn't deserve to wake up this morning. You don't deserve to wake up tomorrow morning. And every day he puts off death. Every day he gives you more life. There is this abundance of benefits that we have in this wonderful world. How could we ever thank Him? How could we ever repay Him? How could we ever present to Him some sort of gift that is worthy of our gratitude? How could we ever have enough gratitude to match the greatness of His gift? Well, 13 and 14. I'll take the cup of salvation. Ah, see, there's the trick. True gratitude... And our relationship to God doesn't attempt to repay him for Christ. It accepts Christ. It takes from his hand his benefits with joy. We're not meant to repay him. We're meant to rejoice in what we get from him. We're meant to take the cup of salvation in our hand and say, here's my life. Let me drink and let me drink with joy. We're meant to indulge in his abundance of benefits. He means for us to delight in his salvation. And we are to call upon the name of the Lord. That name by which we must be saved. We are to pray for salvation in Jesus Christ. The name that means He saves. And we are to pay our vows to the Lord. In the old Hebrew culture, this is the idea of crying out, Lord, save me. If you save me, I'll give you a goat. Jephthah does this very stupidly. He made a good promise. Keeping his promise was not so good. We too are to live in a world where we need God to save us. And we say, Lord, if you will save us, I will sacrifice in thanksgiving. But of course, we don't sacrifice goats and rams and bulls anymore. There's only two sacrifices left in the New Testament. One of them you heard from Tom this morning, Romans chapter 12. Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Our thanksgiving to God is a life in His goodness. A life receiving His goodness with joy. The proper expression of gratitude to God for His great grace is that we drink of that grace delightfully and live in the riches of His bounty. But secondly, the sacrifice of praise from the book of Hebrews. The fruit of lips that acknowledge God. These are the two New Testament vows. The two New Testament sacrifices of thanksgiving. That so long as I have life on this earth, I will use that life to enjoy the abundant blessings of God and to sing His praises. To say hallelujah. To say, help me Lord. And then to pray my way into hallelujah. This is what our first response is. We live We live in the riches of His grace. We live in the treasures of His joy. But secondly, we die. You see verses 15 and 16? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, truly, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. 
you have loosed my bonds. The psalmist died. We all will die. The psalmist does not promise us a life without death. The psalmist promises the saints of the living God a death which is precious in the sight of God. That God cherishes the death of his saints. That God treasures the death of his saints. Why is this? Why does God count your death precious? I'll give you two reasons. One, it brings you to him. See, if you look at death from his point of view, it's not you leaving earth, it's you joining him. It is very precious to him. You know what else? There was a saint, that first saint, the foremost saint, the most holy one of Israel, and his death was precious in God's sight. His death was atonement for your sin. His death is God's treasure, sacrifice for sinners. The Holy One of God, that saint, that most sainted saint, His death is precious in the sight of God. And my friends, His death is your death. This is what the waters of baptism mean. Next week, Miles gets to come up front. We get him wet. And it's a cute little ceremony with a photograph and a baby and people in pretty clothes. You know what else it is? It's Jesus saying, he gets to live forever because I died for him. I gave my life for him. I am the good shepherd. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. His death is precious to God. And I beg you, dear saints, is it precious to you? Do you treasure the death of Christ and say, that's my death. He died for me. Truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. In these words, the psalmist again presses us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. For this phrase, maidservant, points back to Psalm 113. That barren virgin woman who conceived a son through the power of the Holy Spirit and became a joyful mother. It's Mary. Here is Jesus. I am your servant, according to Isaiah 53. The servant of the living God, the son of the maidservant Mary. And God has loosed his bounds. That death was so precious to him that he has overcome it with resurrection. And so it is for us that we who cherish the death of Christ can expect the resurrection of Christ in Christ. My friends, the first thing we must do when we understand that all our near-death experiences are communicating to us. God hears us, God answers us, and God has a plan for us. And that plan is resurrection from the dead. The reason every single day of our earthly lives is constantly affected by death. And why we are drowning in a sea of death is because in all of these sorrows and tears and troubles, God is whispering to us, this is how I save sinners. This is how I save sinners. Their death is precious to me. We live this life in the bounty of His grace and His abundant blessings. We also die in such riches. We die in the hope and expectation of the resurrection. With that in mind, the third and final thing we must do. Verses 17 through 19. We must live, we must die, and we must live eternally. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, Praise the Lord. You'll notice in verse 17 and 18, the psalmist repeats almost word for word a striking similarity to verses 13, 14. 
The psalmist says prior to his death in verses 15, 16, I will take the cup of salvation. That once for all acceptance of Christ, that once for all drinking of the life of Christ, that he might have abundant life. But now he says in verse 17, I will offer to you, that is after his death in 15 and 16, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. By that the psalmist means that I will stand in judgment. And there I will present to him my life's work and my life's worship. I will render up my body as a living sacrifice. And I will render up my praises as the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The psalmist, having received from Christ his life in salvation, now in final judgment presents his life back to Christ that they might be one. Let me be a little more explicit with our familiar Reformed language. Have you guys heard of Evangelism Explosion where they ask you the questions, right? They go door to door. It's, it's from G, James D. Kennedy. It's like 50 years ago. And they say, if you stood before God right now in judgment, what would you tell him? Friends, the only right answer is Jesus. The only right answer is Jesus died for me. Jesus was raised for me. The psalmist receives in the cup of salvation the life of Christ. And when the psalmist's life on earth has expired, he presents back to God his judge that life of Christ. And says, this is my life, I have no other. I am in Christ. I will call upon the name of the Lord. That name, Jesus, is the only name I have. We were born with a name. They're good names. Names of our earthly families. Names of our parents' hopes and ambitions for us. But when we die, we die with only one name. We die with the name of Jesus. The name by which men must be saved. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of his people. I will fulfill that devotion that having lived on earth to the praise and glory of God, I will now live in heaven to the praise and glory of God. There is a symmetry between what we're doing on this earth and what we're doing in heaven. That our work and our worship in this life is caught up into the work and worship of the life that is to come. And there is a point of intersection where the resurrection becomes greater than the death. There's a point in this earthly life when the truth and the reality of the resurrection in the heavens that are to come surpass the trauma of this tragedy and death. It's the final three lines. In the presence of all his people, in the courts of his house, in the midst of Jerusalem. Now, isn't that scandalous? The psalmist turns to Israel and says, I know it looks like Jerusalem, but it's really heaven. I know it looks like a motley crew of sinners, but it's really glorious saints. This is what Psalm 116 is doing to us. It is teaching us to pray through the reality of death into the greater reality of resurrection. This is what we are doing Lord's Day by Lord's Day. I know on most Sundays it feels like ritual. On most Sundays it it feels like social interaction. It's, It's great fellowship, especially after the pandemic. But do you know what Psalm 116 actually is telling us we're doing today? We are enacting our future. We are practicing resurrection. We are training ourselves to live in the new heavens and the new earth. To put God in the center of our existence. God in the center of our world. To embrace Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as the end and goal of our life. See, the reality of near-death experiences is they teach us God is listening to our prayers. They teach us that God is answering our prayers. They teach us that He saves from death. But most of all, they teach us that death isn't the point. Jesus is. 
Death is what awakens us in life to resurrection in Jesus Christ. And this is how we pray. Having grasped the gospel truth, Jesus died our death. I want to show you one last tidbit from the psalm. Psalm 113, if you flip there just for a moment, you'll notice that it uses third person. The Lord, Israel, the woman, his people. Psalm 114, Israel, Jacob, people, Judah, Israel, the Lord, the Lamb, third person. Psalm 115, first person plural, not unto us. Then third person, them, God, he, not unto us. The end of the psalm. Psalm 116 introduces a pronoun we have not yet seen in these psalms. I. The reason it's first person is because it's not your psalm primarily, it's Christ's. Jesus sang it for you. Jesus lived it for you. And Jesus died it for you. Do you cherish that? Do you treasure that death and say, that death on the cross 2,000 years ago, that's my death. I don't have another one. That's the one that matters. The one that's awaiting me around the corner is inconsequential because I have already died. I died 2,000 years ago on the cross in Christ. Jesus died your death. Is that true? Do you believe that? Then pray with hope. Then pray with confident expectation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day, for this beautiful psalm, for our beautiful Savior. We give you thanks for this great hope and promise that though we are ever dogged by death, there is resurrection right around the corner. We give you thanks, O God, that though we bury our dead, and though we ourselves will be buried in death, there is in Christ resurrection. He has died for us, and now he will raise us up. O God, this is our confession. Please write it upon our hearts and bring it out into our work, that we might worship and glorify you all our days. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's Psalm 116.